Welcome to Retold, the podcast where we have real people retell their amazing experiences of life. We believe life provides the greatest source of drama, intrigue, and humor. Stories here are fresh, inspirational, and transforming. Join us, won't you? Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Retold where we let real people retell their life story experiences. Today, I'm with Joshua Hodges. He's the Associational Missionary Strategist for Valley Rim Southern Baptist Association in Mesa, Arizona, representing um, a few churches, something like 80 churches that live here. And Josh is going to talk to us today about his experience in the military, how that came about, how he got deployed, and uh, what kind of feelings and impressions he had along the way. So, Josh, tell us about not only you you and your wife, Deidre, and your four children, but what stage of life were you in when all of this military stuff happened to you and when you got called away to be deployed? Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me on here. And the military was something that was kind of a part of what I thought my life would be, even from a young age. My dad had been in the Marines, but long before I was born. And so there was always kind of a draw to that. And I think just even uh, boys, I think, are just drawn to that kind of thing anyway, like playing army in the woods and stuff like that. So, But I was about, let's see, my parents split uh, my senior year in high school. So kind of a time when you're making decisions anyway. And, uh, man, it just kind of messed my whole world up. And so we moved in, me and my mom and my brother moved in with my grandparents. And somewhere in there, I went and talked to a recruiter, a Marine recruiter, and set up a time for him to come to the house. And he did. And when he got there, my grandpa let him have it. My grandpa was not happy about me bringing a recruiter to the house. So he served in Korea uh, and didn't want me to have any part of any of it. So, okay, that's all right. A couple months later, I'd had some friends that had joined the National Guard. We had a National Guard recruiter come, and, you know, they pitch on school and everything else. And I think I had three friends that signed up that senior year, maybe. Maybe junior year, even. I don't remember now. But I thought, this seems like a good deal, and it's the National Guard. It's not Marines, so surely my grandpa will be okay with this. So I'll just go and, uh, you know, kind of the what you have in your mind, the one week in a month, two weeks a year, weekend warrior kind of thing. And so I set up this recruiter to come to the house, and my grandpa loses his mind again. And so he's let two recruiters have it now, and he let me have it, and I thought, well, maybe we'll just let this go for a while. So that's what I did. Uh, I had a few friends, like I said, three or four that signed up, close friends that we played ball with, grew up with, that kind of thing. Uh, Me and my best friend, but we didn't. He and I didn't. And we were sitting around, right around graduation, just after graduation one night, late, not doing anything good, but not doing anything to get in trouble, just sitting around. And uh, we said, if in three years it looks like our life is going nowhere, we'll go back to the Marines. Well, that's what we'll do. So fast forward about three years, and we're sitting around, and one of us remember that conversation. And we're like, all right, uh, let's go tomorrow. And so that's what we did. So we woke up the next day, went to the recruiter, um, had maybe one or two visits with the recruiter, went to the office. I mean, we were 
poster children for it. I mean, we walked in and said, hey, we want to go as quick as you can get us out of here. Um, we were both in shape, played lots of sports, that kind of thing. And so they're like, all right, you know, we can get you out of here. <laughs> and they said, well, you know, what do you want to do? They're trying to talk to us. And we're like, we want infantry. That's what we want to do. And uh, so we we leave. We had to come back for another appointment or something like that. And one of our friends that was in the National Guard with us, or, or was in the National Guard at the time, came with us. And uh, he said, why don't we stop by the armory on the way home? We can talk to that recruiter because they're going to pay for all your school. The Marines at the time weren't. Um, and, you know, whatever else he told us. We said, okay, whatever. We'll go talk to him. And so we left there that day. We signed papers with the National Guard. And within two weeks, we were heading off to basic training. So uh, that all happened pretty quick. That was basically what we wanted. We said we want to go. We want to go now. And whoever can get us there the fastest, that's who we're going with. And so he said, I can get you out fast. And so we, uh, let's see, that was January of 03. And by February, we were in Fort Jackson, South Carolina, getting ready to start basic training. Um, the unit was an armor unit, so tanks. And we'd want to do infantry, but we thought tanks would be cool. So we were going to do that, you know. And my friend was colorblind, and neither one of us knew that. Turns out I, I am too, but was able to pass the colorblind test the first time. And so you can't be a tanker if you're colorblind. I, I don't still don't understand why, but you can't be. And so we're at the, it's called MEPS, the Military Entrance Processing Station in Nashville, Tennessee, when we found out he was colorblind. And they said, you can't be a tanker. Uh, but you can be, in your unit, you can be, uh, I forget the nomenclature. It's like 71 Lima, which sounds real tough anyway. 71 Lima, you know, who knows what that is. It's an administrative specialist. Well, he and I, neither one, knew anything about administration. Um, but they were going to let me be a tanker and him be an administrative specialist. Well, he kind of went with me, and so I felt bad that I was going to get to do that, and he was going to have to do paperwork. And so I said, why don't we just go together and do that, and then we can switch later on. And so they said, yeah, we can do that. And so to go to tank school, it was going to take me like, I don't know, say nine months later in the year before I could go. And if we went to this admin school, we could go right away. And so we both said, all right, let's do it. And so that's what we did. So these two hillbillies from Kentucky that could barely type uh, went to administrative specialist school. Uh, so that's what we did. Went to basic training and then went and did that. And uh, went very, didn't take very long. It was like a five or six week course to get through that. And so that's kind of how it started. Uh, came back to our unit and kind of under the impression that we would be able to change our jobs, reclassify. Uh, that's what we had been told. But, you know, it's kind of that classic recruiter thing. The recruiter will tell you whatever you want to get you. And so they did, but we, we wouldn't have mattered. We'd have went anyway. And so we came back thinking we'd be able to switch and go to uh, tank school and be in our hometown unit with all of our buddies. And so we showed up there and we're like, hey, we're reporting. We just got out of basic training. Um, you know, what do we need to do? And I said, you're not in this unit. I'm like, what are you talking about? They're like, you got to go two hours away. That's what you're going to do. And so that was kind of the start of our National Guard career. And we were, man, we were so mad. We were angry. Um, so after these five weeks of administrative training, 
and you came back to your hometown for that unit, you're told you can't be in that unit. Yeah. So what did the what did the, the rest of the month or the week or your efforts look like? Was it still a weekend thing? And then yeah, at that point, uh, you're kind of in the normal routine, National Guard type routine. Uh, I was in basic training when the Iraq War kicked off. And so we were, when we had duty at night, like, uh, I can't think of what it's called now. Uh, there's fire watch, but you'd have another duty where you had to sit in an office, man a phone in case something happened in the middle of the night. And that was the only place where there was a TV. And so if you got that duty, uh, you could watch how the war was kind of unfolding. And so uh, coming in at that point, obviously it's after 9-11, but Iraq is just kicking off in March of that year of 03. But when we get back uh, to our hometown, you know, it's school job, uh, and then whatever else, you know, you're doing, and then one week in a month, uh, you know, kind of like it's built on TV when you see the commercials, that kind of thing, uh, and it was like that for a while, but that's, that's about the time, once Iraq started, the National Guard really became much more involved uh, in the war effort, and so we had about three years of kind of one week in a month, two weeks during the summer. Uh, you know, give or take a little bit, and uh, man, we hated it, hated every second of it. I'd be nauseous, like the week, the whole week before leading up to my drill week, because you're also a private or you're lower enlisted, and so we didn't know anything about it. We didn't know anything we were doing. We didn't know the people we were around. It wasn't where we wanted to be, and so, man, by Tuesday, I'd be just get this pit in my stomach. Like, oh, I don't do this. But we did that for about three years uh, before we got uh, our first orders to deploy. And so that was, yeah, about 06 is when we, is when we did that. So had about three years of just kind of dealing with garbage. Uh, but once we hit the deployment, things changed a little bit. Uh, we were moving up in rank a little. And so that was actually a pretty good time. Uh, it kind of changed our, our perspective on it quite a bit. So how far were we into the war in Iraq when you actually got the orders to be deployed? Uh, three years. I mean, what was the situation at that time? So, um, you know, you had the initial push, the shock and awe. Um, that was pretty big within, I don't remember the timeline now. I, I want to say within like a month, April or May, or maybe it was later in the year. But they'd already declared that we'd won and official combat operations had stopped. Uh, but that really was just language that they were using to communicate whatever message they wanted. Uh, 2004 or 2005, uh, the Civil War was really started in Iraq uh, amongst their own people. And in 2006, it was, I mean, it was, that's what was going on. That was the biggest thing, was that. And so, I mean, there was a lot of fighting between the two. And then the people would take advantage of that to fight with, you know, military with the um, U.S. or coalition troops. Uh, so there was a lot happening in 06. And this was prior to uh, the surge. I don't know if you remember the surge or not, but Bush, everybody said, you need to pull everybody out. <laughs> it's kind of funny. Or we thought it was funny. Uh, everybody was telling Bush, hey, this thing's over with. You need to get everybody out. We want our troops back home. And, and Bush kind of doubled down on it. And so we're going to send 150,000 more troops. So that was while I was in country that happened so and we had some friends that got extended um one friend or several that were a part of a unit that had deployed 
before us, but they were in country while we were there. They got extended, and they did a 22-month tour. Mm-hmm. National Guard did 22 months. And so it affected some people so, quite significantly. So your um, deployment into Iraq, what was your specific responsibility in that deployment initially? Um, so we, my friend and I, there were several uh, in a Western Kentucky unit that were attached to an infantry battalion out of Eastern Kentucky. And so we were just kind of backfilling slots that they needed. Uh, those guys, most of those guys had infantry MOSs, that's your military occupation. Uh, and me and my buddy didn't. We had this administrative special, you know, what is this? And so both of us got pulled to be originally, I want to say it was radio operators. We were the yeah, RTOs, radio operators. Mm-hmm. And so we got split up into different units, he and I. Um, this was my best friend. He and I both got split up. And so I got attached to kind of a headquarters element for the battalion and was working out of the operations center, uh, which hated, didn't want anything to do with. Um, but turned out it was ended up being pretty fantastic. Um, I wasn't, not that I'm anything wild and crazy, but I wasn't your typical administrative guy and it fit kind of with those guys but that's where I was at I didn't get to be in one of the line units or one of the infantry companies and so because of that I got to do some extra stuff as far as uh, uh, personal security for the battalion commander uh, things like that they sent us to a little extra training we got to do some different stuff and then my friend uh, he got um, sent to another company that their mission uh, was a mission where they were wearing plain clothes uh, they were driving around in uh, Opals. That's one of the big cars in the Middle East. Um, a lot of them didn't have armor or anything on it. And they were taking, you know, State Department guys who were working. What's the word? They, they were picking up people in the city and working them for information. And so they would drive these guys around and set up meetings and stuff like that. And so I was like, man, he's got this job and I'm sitting over here in this office. But it ended up being pretty cool. I got to do quite a bit. Uh, I kind of got the best of both worlds in it. So I, I worked out of the office. I got a lot of experience around uh, a lot more rank um, battalion commander and his staff. Um, and I was the I was the battle NCO for the night shift. And so any type of patrols we had going on, if we had troops in contact, if we had to um, you know, insert our quick reaction force, I was... Um, eventually to a point to where I was kind of maneuvering all of that with, of course, you know, oversight from whoever the officer was or the battalion commander or something like that. Was it in this stage that you had your first interaction with Iraqis? Um, yeah. Yeah, once once we got there. So <laughs> you land in Kuwait, and we were getting off the plane. And, you know, we were deboarding. It's a charter flight. We're deboarding, and I was getting out of the back. Uh, side of the plane, and you're right there on the tarmac. This was late September, um, early October, and so it's still warm. Kuwait's similar to here in Arizona, uh, weather-wise, or at least southern Arizona, and I'd never been anywhere in a desert, period. And so we're getting off the back of the plane, and one of the guys, a couple of guys in front of me, one says, man, that engine is hot. He thought he was getting the heat off the, the, the engine. The plane was still running. And the other dude said, no, nah, man, you're an idiot. He said, that's what it feels like. 
He's like, this is where we're at. And he was right. That's what it felt like. It felt like 150 degrees, like it, Kuwait was hot. And so you interact a little bit with some of the local nationals, but very, very little there. They work on the base. Uh, so even in Kuwait, it's just a stationary. You kind of acclimate to the heat, the climate. And then once you go in country, in Baghdad at least, um, there, I mean, there's a ton of people working on base that are either local nationals or third country nationals that come in from some other country, contracted out. And so in my mind, going there, I assumed everybody on the base would be, you know, American troops, or at least coalition troops at some point. And it wasn't the case. And so uh, I'm on the night shift. Early on, I get put on the night shift, and we're doing kind of a back and forth. We're observing what the unit is doing before us, and they're kind of teaching us and training us, and then eventually we kind of switch, and they would let us do it, and they would watch. But, uh, you know, you're getting your bearings. You're trying to figure out the base, where you're at, where you can go, where you shouldn't go, those kinds of things. And I was walking on base at like 2 in the morning to go into work. And I'm by myself, and there's stuff happening. There's 24-hour operations, so there's always stuff happening. Uh, I'm walking, and I walk past the portajons, which portajons everywhere, and uh, somebody pops out of one. They're just coming out normal, but it's a. He was either a local national or a third. He was a he was a Muslim, so he had headdress on and different things like that. Like it was clear that he wasn't a soldier, and he pops out of this porta potty. And scared the daylights out of me. Like, just absolutely. T- I'm like, oh my God. You know, I thought I was being attacked uh, by this guy on base. And so it took me a while to kind of get used to that. But you begin having some interaction there. And then within a couple of weeks, I started going on patrols with the battalion commander. And so once you go on those, uh, you start interacting with some of the populace, local populace there. Uh, he was doing meeting with tribal members, tribal councils, and things like that. So I got some different interaction even there just being in some of the rooms with some of these people, pulling security for him and that kind of thing. So, you know, you had quite a bit. You worked towers. Um, we had guys that that was their job the whole time pretty much as they worked the security for the base, and they would be in towers uh, up on a wall. And so we would rotate in and out uh, to give them days off, that kind of thing. Or we would stand extra towers up if there was a lot of activity. And so you work the towers, and the kids come up to the towers and talk to you, and they try to sell you stuff, or they – ask for stuff, that kind of thing. And so you, you you had a fair amount of interaction with with the Iraqi people while you were there. Just depends on your situation. So when you're inside the compound and then you go outside, what is that got a terminology? You go uh, outside the wire. Outside the wire. Yeah. So when you go outside the wire, do you find a, a number of Iraqis that can speak English and ask you questions and talk to you? There are some. Um, maybe even more that would let on because sometimes you're wanting to talk to them and you're pretty sure they speak English, but they don't want to talk to you. So it just kind of depends. And then there's some that clearly don't have any English at all. Quite a few of the kids did, or at least they would have some broken English. But yeah, it just kind of depends. I think it's growing or was growing. I don't know if it still is, but uh, most of our interpreters would be Iraqi. So it just kind of depends on where you're at and, and who you're interacting with. What was the general impression you got of the Iraqi people toward you? Man, it, it was really broad. It, it changed throughout the deployment. Uh, it changed 
depending on circumstances in the villages and the towns that we were in. So our our base was on the western edge of Baghdad. Uh, Baghdad's a huge city. So even thinking like Phoenix here, it's just a big sprawling city. So uh, it'd be on the western edge. It'd be like we were in uh, Baghdad. You know, the city kind of butts up to it. So that's where the Baghdad International Airport was. And so when the troops came in in 03, that was one of the locations that we kind of took control of. You know what the airport looks like. You got the runways there. Basically, we set up a base all the way around this entire airport. So we're on the western edge of that. So it, it, it's a town. It's kind of a uh, suburbs of the word. It's just it's pretty run down, uh, but it butts right up against it. And so it would depend on what kind of things were happening in that area that we were patrolling. Had somebody been killed? Whose fault was it? Did they think it was? Americans, or was it you know one of the other tribes? It, it really kind of depended. So we would get a lot of people that were clearly very pro-American um, U.S. troops, and then you would drive through some places, and and you can just the hate was visceral. I mean, you could see it, you could feel it, you could tell uh, that they absolutely despised the fact that you were there. So it it really changed. So being a boy from Western Kentucky. Right. And coming to an international country. Is this your first international country? Yeah. Yeah. This is this first time I had been anywhere. And so uh, it was certainly a shock to the system. I didn't keep I had set out to keep a journal. I thought I'll write all this stuff down. Well, I'm not much of a writer. Not in that sense. And so at least not at that point in life either. And so I began doing that. But I can recall very vividly writing down something as we're driving driving through the desert in Kuwait, and I don't, I don't remember if we had just got there or if we had been there for a couple of weeks and we were fixing to fly into Baghdad. Um, but somewhere in there, I can, I can remember driving. It's just sand as far as you can see. There's no structures. There's no anything. Big dunes. Uh, the sun feels like it's sitting on top of you. Um, and I'd already interacted with people a little bit, and I was like, you know, they're, they're just people. They have some different customs, but they're really no different. And that was the first time I really had that realization. Because, uh, I don't know if everybody was like this, at least in my mind, the even when I was going through basic training, and we'd be doing, you know, some type of training operation. We'd be marching maybe at night or early in the morning. Uh, you're in kind of wooded areas. So in my mind, what I thought of a war was what I'd seen on like Vietnam movies. Like that. It's kind of what I had in my mind. Uh, which is not like that at all. You know, you think you're going to land and it's going to be chaos. It, it, it's just not the case. And so, yeah, that the first, early on, I just had this realization that, well, they're just other human beings. Um, completely different belief systems, but they're just human beings. They're doing the same things. You tell your guys that were working at the airport that were hiding in the shade smoking, you know. They weren't supposed to be because uh, they were Muslims, but that's what they were doing. Uh, and so I thought, eh, we'll see how this goes. <laughs> Did you come into the encounter with these Muslim people where they would stop there five times and pray? Uh, yeah. Yeah, there were uh, from the time we landed in Kuwait uh, was about the time of day for one of their calls to prayer. And there were people that were praying. Um, the first night in in Baghdad, on base, I mean, you can hear, they have, you know, big megaphone systems on top of their mosque, 
And so the call to prayer, the first night I heard that, I was like, what in the world um, is this? You know, it just sounds wild. It's it's another language. I mean, there's some other things that are happening there that I would perceive differently now, but just even hearing that the first time, I was like, I don't like that. (laughs) But I got used to it because you hear it, you know, five times a day for a year, essentially. So So being a person of faith, as you work in the work that you work here and here, and then going to Iraq and seeing persons of faith stop and and practice this ritual of praying and a call of prayer going out from the mosque, was there any comparison? Was there any differentiation? You know, I'm I'm sure there was. At that particular point in my life, I was not walking with the Lord. Okay. Um, and so, uh, on one hand, I'm I'm very clearly remember thinking about those things, but just in my own personal life, I I was angry at God, um, and I. I I knew that what they were doing was wrong. Who they're trying to worship. You know, there was things that I would pick out and say, golly, I don't know why they're doing that in some ways. But I, I didn't give it much thought because I didn't I didn't want anything to do with God. I was upset. I was angry. And so uh, I would just kind of not go into those places very much. Would, did that persist through your entire time in Iraq? Through my first deployment, yes. Um, my second deployment, which was in Baghdad also, was at the same base. No, that wasn't the case. Uh, the Lord had really um, gripped my life in between those deployments, and, and I was um, did perceive things quite differently. What was it that happened in between? Yeah, it was really just... Um, period of time there wasn't an event in there it was just a matter of of God's grace and mercy over a period of years not letting go of me you know not forsaking me despite me giving him every reason to you know intentionally going out of my way to do things that were sinful and knowing that Uh, but it was it was really just a a matter of, of God continually working on my heart over years one of, not that this was the event, but just uh, changes in my life. I was getting married. You know, I was dating Deidre at the time after the first deployments when we got married. And so there were just some life changes that were happening that were causing me to think about things differently that God was using, I think, just to kind of soften my heart. Um, so that's really what it was. There wasn't one thing or a big thing. Um, it was just kind of that continual presence. And saying, no, yeah, I'm, I'm not done. Give me a little bit of a view of the the uh, deployment, the first deployment, the space of time in between, and then the second deployment. How long were you deployed the first time? How much space in between? And then how long for the second time? The first deployment was 06. We started kind of pre-deployment mobilization stuff around May, June time frame of 06. I uh, went to Camp Shelby, Mississippi. I uh, was there for about three months and then spent a year in country. So from like late September, early October 06 to October 07. Total about 15, 16 months. And then uh, redeployed again in 2011. And uh, I think it was Memorial Day weekend for the following week. 
we went to go to uh, Camp Atterbury, Indiana. Spent maybe two months there. And then we came out in December. So when we officially shut down Iraq, we deployed, Kentucky deployed as a division in 2011. So our mission was essentially to shut down bases and to turn operations over to the Iraqi army. So at one point, um, you had the, the airport had an Air Force base on it that we maintained. You had the State Department uh, that was in the U.S. Embassy and the State Department that was in kind of downtown Baghdad. And so there was an element that remained there. Uh, and that was about it. So when we, we pulled our guys down out of towers and we put Iraqi Army up in towers, we lined our trucks up by the gate and we rolled out. And so at one point, we were the, the largest uh, full unit uh, at the most northern point in Iraq. There was nobody farther north of us. And we were kind of drawing down that way. Everybody was moving south. And so we came out, uh, I forget what day it was, and it was two or three days later when that last unit, uh, per se, we still had a contingency that stayed in Iraq, but the last unit was released down there. So did you guys exit through Kuwait again? We did. Okay, so Kuwait was an entry point. Yep. And then Kuwait was an exit point. Correct. That's that's an interesting aspect because we hear that it's Kuwait in the initial form that called us because of the invasion that Saddam Hussein had right. early on into their own country. Right. And then the atrocities he did with his own people. So as you as you look at these experiences in both of your deployments, what's the most outstanding thing that happened to you? And there's there's a ton of different experiences. I think just a completely different perspective of the world uh, would be the most outstanding thing that, that took place out of all that. You see, I mean, I grew up in a small town in western Kentucky. Everybody looks like me, talks like me, acts like me. You know, in a nice community. You know, there was poverty in some of the towns, but for the most part, uh, just a, a solid middle-class community. So being exposed to other parts of the world, being exposed to some uh, just challenging situations, it, it just caused me to view the world differently, to recognize just a, really a ton of different things that, that changed my perception entirely uh, of people, uh, of what people are capable of. Good and bad. Good and bad. Yeah, absolutely. And so it, it just it just really broadened my outlook on on a lot of things. And and some of that has, was even a process. It didn't that didn't all just happen. Uh, I mean, it was it was years of me processing these things and thinking through these things. Uh, but that would be the most outstanding thing that came from those deployments. Cool things you just see. My first deployment, we had a wall of TVs in the operations center that operated. We had uh, access to drone feeds where we could watch and observe things. We had other cameras in places that could see into the city that we had access to that we could control, uh, like technology. And, and even now, since 06, that's changed dramatically. But there were things. I walked into this room the first day, and I thought, I'm in a movie. This is like this is like something straight out of the movie. So there was just things like that that you just most people don't get to experience. That's really interesting. 
the, it, it fascinates me at, at our how our worldview changes when we encounter the world, you know, in their location, and the fact that you had this transition of movement from from not really talking to God, kind of being angry with God in your first deployment, to a relationship with your wife and and a different feeling as you go into the second deployment. It makes me think about the transition that happens in our in our own life and why that's important. I sense from you in my conversations with you off the this podcast is that you're a warrior type person. You like competition, you like athletics, you like battles. And I'm guessing that your friends that entered into the military with you are the same kind of guys. Were you disappointed that there wasn't a specific conflict while you were there? Uh, I don't know if disappointed would be the right word. Um, the The battle captain, uh, the officer in charge on my shift, he and I uh, became good friends. Uh, he was a few years older than me, but kind of a younger guy still. Uh, we joked, I say, I say joked, our perception of what we thought war would be like was different than our experience. Now, there were plenty of people that their experience was awful from day one to the end, but ours, I was fortunate. But we, we would drive around on post and there would be a Pizza Hut or a Burger King or stuff like that. And there's a lot of guys that didn't have that experience. They're out in the middle of nowhere and didn't. But we were shocked that this is what's happening. You know, there were plenty of engagements of one kind or another on the first one. The first deployment was pretty wild in the sense of what was happening in the community around us. Uh, but there weren't any big battles. So from a even maybe a foolish standpoint to some degree, that sense of adventure and excitement, uh, yeah, there was probably a little bit of sense of, like, I would like to do something differently. Uh, at the same time, you recognize that the people that have those experiences don't necessarily want those experiences uh, because of what comes with it. So, uh, but yeah, there, there's definitely a, a sense of you want to be, in some ways, I would compare it to, you know, we talk about basketball all the time, um, wanting to have uh, the very last shot in the big game, you know, wanting to make that big play. So there's a desire, uh, there's a sense of a desire for something like that, yet with a realization that there's some weighty consequences that may come with that. Uh, and so trying to balance those, I think, is, is where you try to find yourself. So now that you're back, and you've been back for a long period of time, uh, do you find yourself, 10 years, yeah. do you find yourself relating to veterans in a different way, of all wars? Yeah. <laughs> so me and my group of friends, all were pretty, so there's six of us, we all were pretty headstrong competitors, and we were going to do things the way we wanted to do them. That's just kind of how our outlook on life was. And so when we went into the military, you see guys, you run into guys that they go to basic training or boot camp and they come back and they're 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 army all the way or they're Marine Corps all the way and they're in some ways wanting you to know, hey, this is who I am. For us, that wasn't our our identity uh, in many ways. So this was something that we did, but it wasn't completely who we were. And so the guys, 
that were just all about it was not like, man, y'all need to get a life. Like, there's other things besides this. Now, though, most of those actually all, I'm the only one that got out. Uh, after 10 years, I got out. All the rest of them are still in. Uh, but even now, just as I'm getting older, you know, certainly the way that I relate to veterans is different. The appreciation that I have for the guys that are still serving is different. I think, for me, I think I was more immature than I thought that I was at the time to even recognize the significance of what I was being a part of. Uh, now you look at it when you get older and you say, oh, that was that was a pretty big deal. But at the time, it was just, okay. And if I ran into somebody outside of normal National Guard, whatever, I didn't have a uniform on, I probably wouldn't even talk to them. Uh, just because you meet a lot of guys that are, you get people from all things. Some guys can be, you know, different. <laughs> so what do you think about the the kind of uh, suicide rate that we're experiencing with veterans who've come back, especially in the last 20 years, who've come back from conflicts and they seem to just not fit. What do you, what do you make of that? Uh, I don't know completely what to make of that. I think, um, I think there's a lot of things that factor into that. Think about if there is a wall, the wall has crack in it. Time and pressure will make that crack bigger, right? Uh, eventually the wall comes down. And so there are, there are plenty of guys that had some extremely difficult and challenging experiences and, and knowing how to process that. There's just not a playbook for that, uh, in a sense. Uh, but you also have um, guys that maybe came into the military, and for the most part, everything looks good, everything looks normal, but Mentally or emotionally, there's some cracks uh, from experiences that they've had in their life that nobody can see. It's covered up. But the pressure and the time uh, spent serving in those, those situations, it just it builds up and it causes that crack to expand. In some cases, uh, it blasts. And that's kind of, well, that's anecdotal. That's my own opinion of that. But that's that's kind of how I view a lot of those. And a lot of guys, it's just straight up, um, man, how do, I don't know how to deal with what I've seen or what I've experienced. Uh, they have no framework to process any of that. And so they, they kind of find themselves just in a hopeless situation, hmm. uh, feeling hopeless. How does that relate to us uh, spiritually? When you think about people at large being broken, is it during their most pressurized moments that those cracks become apparent or they kind of fall off mentally or emotionally and then this is just kind of accelerated because military guys are in a very different situation? Is it different for civilians? Is it different for military guys, the cracks and the flaws? Or is it just their circumstances cause them to be kind of explosive and exposed more rapidly. You know, I think that's a great way of putting it. Now, I don't think it is different. I think that everybody ex experiences different, uh, whether it's as a result of sin or a result of their circumstances. There's challenges in their life that, that, that none of us are perfect. We all have things that are cracks, if you want to call them that, if I can use that word, or I can use that word. But certainly combat uh, accelerates that. Um, there's, a, there's an intensity 
and a pressure to that that's just not like you experience anywhere else, or at least I've not experienced. So let's uh, let's talk about that for just a minute. Tell me what you think the answer is for both civilian and military people who've realized that they're up against it and they can't handle it by themselves. Well, I mean, the the, the most simple answer to that, maybe not simple, but you know, the, the Sunday school answer is, is Jesus in that sense. Even having a, in many ways, a, a framework to understand what you've experienced or why you've experienced to understand uh, sinfulness and the brokenness of humanity. In many cases, understanding that what we've experienced may not even be the result of our own doing or own decisions. It could be circumstances that we were born in. I always say you can't pick your family. You know, there, there's there are plenty of people that are born into families that the circumstances, um, their life is just going to be hard. And likewise, you can't pick your country, just like the Iraqis can't right. pick theirs, right? right? I didn't get to choose to be born in the United States, uh, and they didn't get to choose to be born in Iraq. And so, yeah, having having a, a framework to understand that, and, and that's what we have in Scripture so much as you look through uh, from the Old Testament to the New is None of these guys had it easy. We we have these our favorite characters in the Bible, but they're all human. You know, people talk about it and they think, oh, well, this guy was so fantastic. Whether it's Abraham or David or whoever it was, but they they all screwed up royally. They all made poor decisions. They all made sinful decisions. And so even even being able to put that into context as you read through Scripture and having a place for that. And seeing how God works in that, I, I think of uh, 1 Corinthians 1, I think it's 28 through 31, but Paul says, God uses the, the foolish and the weak. And that's what we are, all of us. That's, uh, I, don't, I don't really like the phrase of life verse, but I mean, that's that would be that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's anything that's come out of any, any, any good that's come out of anything that I've done, it's in recognizing my own weakness and knowing where I have to turn and turning to the cross. Otherwise, it, it is helpful. So the messiness, what I hear you saying is the messiness of the scriptures really adds to its validity and its reality. Absolutely. Because if it was just a perfect story like Little House on the Prairie always ends with everything getting back together, the family forgiving each other, everybody living in harmony, everything's peaceful, it just doesn't work like that in everyday life and so part of the realization for me is that we live in a broken world Mm -hmm. i think this josh is something that we need to explore maybe on another podcast in another way and maybe some of the people that are listening today to this podcast will will contact us and say you know i'd like to explore this idea of our brokenness and a god who would allow this to happen and how he works to redeem the lives of people. I'd like to hear a little bit more about how that happens. Would you be up for that sometime in the future? For sure. Okay. Okay. Very good. Well, thank you so much for today. And I know you've probably got some other great stories to tell us about (laughs) military experiences. And I hope the guys that are listening today and gals that have military family, they've had uh, experiences that they might contact me 
and say, hey, I'd like to come and tell my story about my life, and I'd be, I'd be glad to have them on here too. I'm, I'm sure you can find far more interesting uh, than what I have. I don't believe that. <laughs> I, I appreciate you coming, and I thank you so much for, for joining us today on Retold, and we look forward to hearing you retell some other things about what military has done, what family has done, but especially what the Lord has done in your life. God bless you, man.